In this special edition of the podcast, New York's Museum of Modern Art is known for its diverse collection and the 1980 schlock horror film Basket Case is a notable addition. Produced on a minuscule budget, the film has not only been preserved and added to the museum's collection, but also restored and encoded to 4K resolution. We'll speak to the lead actor, Kevin Van Hentenrick, not only about his experience shooting the movie and its two sequels, but also about his great love of sculpting and stone carving, an occupation that has sustained him for more than 40 years. I'm Tim Stackpole, and this is Inside the Gallery. Thanks for downloading this special podcast edition and welcome to those who may be joining us for the first time due to this unique episode. As always, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this podcast is produced in Australia and we pay our respects to First Nations elders across the world, whether they be past, present or emerging. And thanks to Pixel Perfect Pro Lab, located in Sydney, whose contribution to this podcast is put to producing the transcripts of this episode for those hearing impaired. And please learn more about Pixel Perfect Pro Lab at pixelperfect.com.au. Basket Case is a 1982 American horror film written and directed by Frank Henenlotter and produced by Edgar Ivans. It features a formerly co-joined twin now separated from his brother Dwayne, Dwayne played by Kevin Van Hentenrick. Dwayne now carries his significantly deformed twin in a wicker cane basket, hence the film's name, and they both exact revenge on those who separated them years ago against their will. Here's a small snippet from the film's trailer. What is the secret Dwayne is hiding in the basket? What's in the basket? Easter eggs? What's in the basket? What's in the basket? What's in the basket? My brother. What's in the basket? Open it, if you dare. You get the idea right now. This is a film of a specific genre, and if you don't think you can face the entire movie, then head to the trailer on YouTube. It pretty much sums up what you can expect. It's not for everyone, but art and independent cinemas across the world in the mid-'80s would screen the film on high rotation. And while the script and production techniques gave the film a narrow and somewhat underground release, it nonetheless quickly became a cult classic. So much so that New York's Museum of Modern Art has preserved, restored and digitised the original 16mm print, which was thought to be lost but was found by the director's mum in her attic. And the film now forms part of the permanent collection at New York's Museum of Modern Art, alongside priceless early Edison Company silent films and the world's largest collection of D.W. Griffiths works. But in taking the lead role of Duane, Kevin Van Hentenrick found himself at a crossroads of art and faced with a wave of inspiration. While having undertaken formal education in acting, his love at the time, as it is today, was rock carving and sculpting, and a visit to Kevin's website easily demonstrates his skill and obvious talent to turn out artistically relevant and objectively striking pieces. There's a link to Kevin's work in the description of this podcast episode at www.insidethegallery.com.au, but right now let's hear about Kevin's attachment to the film and how life during and since then has shaped and inspired his stone carving work. Kevin Van Hentenrick joining us via Zoom. Welcome to Inside the Gallery. 
My pleasure. Thank you. Now, your history, I think if we want to talk about uh, crossroads and inspiration for your art here, I think your history is so very important. In high school, you were known for your motorcycle racing. An accident, I understand, brought that to an end. Then you went into acting, then rock sculpting, which is your passion today. I'm guessing your love of the arts in general took hold very early in your life. You know, my... um my dad used to tell a story. I was five or six, and I found a piece of bark from a tree, and I saw a face in it, and I showed it to him, and my dad was not an art guy. He was a, a tool guy, and mm-hmm. uh, so he didn't see it. So I went away and got crayons and highlighted the face and brought it back to him. I'm told that he carried that piece of bark in his toolbox for years afterwards. Oh, lovely. And when you left high school, you got a place at acting college in New York, but you were picking up rocks from urban New York to begin your sculpting out in the street. Yeah, I was attending the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And I went up to the Little Carnegie Cinema, which was around the corner from Carnegie Hall. And they, it was an art house at the time. They would play Ingmar Bergman and old Fellini films. Mm. And they were showing an old Ken Russell film called The Savage Messiah, which mm-hmm. uh, is a film about an actual sculptor, Henri Gautier, who, a French carver uh, who lived in the time of World War I. And in the course of the film, they showed a, an actual sculptor's hands working a block of marble. And, and marble, if it's a soft marble, you can work fairly fast. And I was so turned on by and, and to the idea of stone as a plastic medium. That pretty much did it for me. Wow. And then, so the, the academy was on Madison between 31st and 30th. And on 30th, between Madison and Park, which was half a block away, was a place called the Sculpture House, which was a um, sculpture supply place. And so I started kind of walking back and forth and looking in the window and trying to figure it out. And after a few weeks of doing that, I would walk in and look around and then walk out. And when I when I thought I had saved up enough money and worked on my nerve enough, I walked in and tortured some poor salesgirl with every question I could imagine regarding stone carving. Yeah. And walked out with a hammer and three basic chisels. And I found a stone in the East Village. And I set up a workbench uh, under what's now called the High Line. The High Line, yes. Familiar with that. Yes, yes. Uh, Which is way trendy now. But Mm. in 1975, it was an abandoned, derelict neighborhood. The The only people in that area... After rush hour in the evening were the girls on 11th Avenue. Mm. And I set up a workbench under the elevated railroad. So I was out of the rain and snow. And when I first touched steel to stone, I had what you could call a revelation or an epiphany. Mm. This was what I was meant to do, that I had angels swirling around my head, guiding my hands. And that moment has powered me to today. Now, I wonder if you still have that piece, Kevin. Oh, no. (laughs) The first piece I tried carving, I completely destroyed. I had no idea what I was doing. 
And so self-taught, I'm guessing. Yes. Yeah. I'm picturing you here in this derelict part of New York, some guy with a workbench chiseling away at rock in the rain and the snow underneath a railway trestle, and yet you feel as if this is what you are meant to do. I mean, could you see it sustaining you for this long? At the time, no. I had no idea. I just knew I had to do it. You you were talking about your acting college. Uh, the, the work came around. You got the role in Basket Case. Coming back to Crossroads again, do you think, well, perhaps acting is the way I'm going to sustain myself here and then sculpting will just be my, my love, my hobby? How, how are you approaching this mentally at that time? Um, I had actually given up acting uh, oh. in favor of sculpture. I was completely focused on sculpture. And uh, Ilsa, who is also in the film, she plays the social worker with the glasses. Ilsa is responsible for me being in Basket Case. She said, uh, I know this guy that makes movies. You should meet him. I said, okay. So uh, I went and met Frank. And I guess he liked me enough to, I had three extra parts in the film just prior to Basket Case, which was uh -huh. called Flash of the Night. And uh, he liked the way I work, apparently. I was always on his case to use student actors because we need the experience. A few months later, I, I'm not sure, how, you know, four or five months maybe, he called me up and he said he had this idea for film and was I interested? And I said, yeah, sure. And on the spot, on the phone, we spent, I don't know, a couple hours on the phone and he told me the film. Mm. You know, when Frank does a pitch, he's like 100% in it. And uh, at the end of it, he said, what do you think? I said, sign me up. Yeah. Here's the thing. Okay. So the budget, as I understand it, around thirty dollars to $35,000. It turns into a classic of its genre. Indeed, I think it probably creates a whole new genre. And then you as a sculptor find yourself signed up for two sequels, which had budgets in the millions of dollars. All of a sudden, do you then have to rethink, well, where am I going in my life? Is sculpting still, still the love or do I really have to give this acting a good shake? Uh, actually, yeah, that's a great question. And even after sculpture remained my primary focus, but there were a number of times when I went back to acting and tried to give it a shot, tried to get an agent. For example, uh, Basket Case 2 was playing in Manhattan during the daytime at about 13 or 14 theaters. Mm. And somewhere in the archive here, I've got a photograph of the marquee with my name on it. And at the same time, I was calling up agents, trying to find someone that would even speak to me. And you get the standard thing, send in your picture and resume. If we need you, we'll call you. Mm. And that was it. And, you know, I had, had no patience for that. Mm. And I was primarily focused on the sculpture. The thing about acting, there are hundreds of thousands of great actors, but not so many who are willing to give up everything for that. Yeah. And that's what it takes. That has to be your primary focus. And it wasn't. Uh, you know, I was also had a band in those days, you know, and we would play out sporadically and stuff. But, you know, it was never I was never willing to give up everything else for the band or for acting mm. because my focus was on, on, on the sculpting. Yes. Yeah. So eventually you moved out of the city in the mid 80s. 
Did you miss that vibe when you went? For me, New York City was always a love-hate relationship. I never really liked it, but you love aspects of it and you hate aspects of it. Mm. I had an old Ford pickup truck when we were starting to move. And uh, in those days, the trucks, you couldn't lock the hood. So I had a a chain that I would put around the hood (laughs) in order to keep people out. And one trip back and forth between the Catskills, we got back late. I was tired. I don't remember. But I didn't put the chain on. And you know, the very next day, my battery was stolen. Yeah. Love, hate. There's a few clips on YouTube of you playing guitar. Is that still part of your repertoire as well? I I play as much as I can, but again, the sculpture is my primary focus. Mm. You know, when I was 24, I wanted to have a band and tour, record and all that stuff, you know. The guitar for me now is more like a meditation. Mm. When when I'm troubled or angry or not focused, I, I pick up the guitar and bang on it for a half an hour and I feel better. The other thing, just going back to the film, looking at the original basket case, and as indicated in my introduction, the Museum of Modern Art actually has it as part of their permanent collection. Yes. But it's a great time capsule of New York, which is so different, I think, today. The narrow corridors of the hotel, the narrow corridors where the doctor's set is, I mean, so much of that, I guess there's still pockets of it in New York. But I I think one of the reasons why the museum holds on to it is because it is that great slice of New York, which has pretty much gone, as you say, the gentrification of the areas that you were living in uh, has completely changed so much of the urban landscape there. Yeah, I'm so glad that we got a little bit of the old time squaring because Mm. the late 70s was the mid 70s to late 70s was the bottom of an economic trough. And uh, New York City was rough in those days. We got threatened, harassed. The the scenes in Times Square, we had people coming out and threatening us. And but we got a little bit of it on film, yeah. And it's all gone now. Times Square is like Disneyland now. And the uh, I actually did watch the the restored print the other night, and it does. It still, you know, has that sixteen millimeter original uh, film format look about it. But the the blow up to digital actually holds quite firm, I think. But moving on to where you are now, the Catskills, is there greater inspiration for you there rather than the hubbub of the city? Well, I, I take inspiration from everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, nature, uh, pictures in a magazine, a sunset. A, mm. You know, I had a few deer run through the yard the other night. It's not so much where you are, but how you are where you are. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. that creates inspiration. Um, you have to be willing to take the moment to look. Yeah. Someone once said is you need to teach yourself how to really see what you're looking at. Yeah. And do you find that much of the inspiration is drawn? I mean, I, I don't know what your preference is in terms of raw material, whether it's a straight up cut block or whether random pieces of stone that you see, and then you see something in that stone that you pick up and then decide what you're going to make from it. Yeah, depending on the stone, there's there's stones that I've liked the stone, and I would set them up on a pedestal as if it was a sculpture, but it's still a raw stone, and then spend five or ten years looking at it before I find it. Yeah, literally. And other stones, I know right away what I'm going to do with them. Yeah, so the inspiration comes in fits and starts or it develops over time. Yes. I mentioned earlier and asked earlier whether you were self-taught. 
And in any sort of discipline, when you are self-taught, there are habits that creep in which could be considered bad habits. Have you gone back in a way to, to teach yourself or to have someone else give you advice on moving ahead with your art to try and remove any bad habits or bad perspectives that you may have built up over time? What an interesting question. Thank you. Well, to backtrack just a bit, in the 70s, the late 70s, when I was trying to figure this out, I looked for someone to apprentice with, and there was nobody in Manhattan doing figurative stone carving in those days. That was the exact moment that they started up working on the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, which is all the way up uptown. And I was in Tribeca at that moment. And I went there and I met the master builder and the master sculptor and the master mason. And they had a really cool setup going on. But the students were carving rectangular blocks at that point. And I already knew how to do that. And they were only paying like six bucks an hour. And it was an hour and a quarter commute away. Mm. And But as far as bad habits, being self-taught, it's hard for me to know yeah. what my bad habits are. Yeah. One of them that I could tell you is that uh, I've been told by a number of people from art schools that they try to shy away from stone carving because it takes too long. Mm. It's too expensive because mm. of that. It's dusty and messy. It takes up too much space, blah, blah, blah. So one of my bad habits is that when I'm working on a piece, I make the highest quality possible the only priority on that piece. Mm. And that is completely counter to our culture right now. And it's one of the things I love most about it. When I was working on the Rip Van Winkle at the summit of Hunter Mountain, uh, I would go early because it was carved in public so people could watch. And I would go early to, uh, to just have some time to try to figure out what the hell I was doing. This, uh, this guy comes and he is already plastered completely plastered, red face and all. And uh, I'm sitting there with a book and my file and pictures open and I've got a, a marker in my hand, you know, and I'm looking at the lines and the mass and the volumes and all this. And he sees me just sitting there looking at the stone. And his comment was, uh, taking a break, eh? Uh, and, yeah. and in fact, that's the hard part of art. Yeah. Even in stone carving, the material removal is relatively rudimentary. Mm. The pneumatic tools we use are from the late 1800s. It's over a hundred-year-old technology. Mm. The hard part is knowing what material to remove, because once you take it out, that's right. And I think, as you say, the creative process is the sitting around and pondering, not being occupied at the time. Look, there are some artists who do begin any sort of work, whether it is uh, painting or, or dance or whatever, and, and begin moving, begin their work, and then they just say, well, let's see what comes of it. But as you say, unless you really do the planning, once you remove that chip of stone, you're never going to get it back. Yeah. Now, we have to think about the commercial considerations here of being a successful artist and looking at your website. There are commissions there and, and commercial work like hand-carved signage and, and in terms of making sure that you, are, you remain a commercial success you know, and can feed and house yourself, I guess you have to tailor your, your opportunities towards what's going to make you a buck in the first instance. At certain times, absolutely. Uh, I started making signs because it was the closest thing to sculpture mm. 
that I could find in this area. And uh, the way it worked out is about every 20 or 30 uh, cheap signs that I did, I would run into a customer who wanted something really cool, a hard sign. So that's why I chose that sort of endeavor. And does it work for you? I mean, obviously, you've survived this well. Yeah. You know, I mean, statistically, there's less than 10% of artists that are able to make their living in art. So Mm. I guess I'm very lucky in that sense. Mm. Uh, Fine art always comes with a degree of poverty as a matter of course. And plenty of artists certainly do know that and, and are experienced in that. We think about sculpting in terms of hammers chisels. I saw a couple of YouTube videos of you with powered chisels as well. What else is in your arsenal in terms of creating your art? Well, again, the main thing is being able to see what you're looking at. That's the most important. But we also use saws, uh, hammer drills. If you purchase a large block of stone from a quarry, they have these huge saws. They have all kinds Mm. of really cool equipment. So You have them cut the block down as much as they are capable of before you get it. There's one piece on the website. It's a round stone with a wreath and a tower, stone tower in the center. I had that block. They cut all of these angles all around it to make it almost round before they shipped it to me. Uh So that saves me weeks of carving. What's your position on the perhaps computerized or mechanical robotic type systems moving into this artistic field? Yeah, that's a cool question. Uh, Appropriate for our our time and our culture. It's not a threat. So I make carved signs. I think you've seen some of them on my website. Mm. Uh, These are all carved by hand with hammer and wood chisels. A good friend of mine that I do a lot of business with has a CNC router to carve signs with, uh, driven Mm. by the computer. And I've seen his work, and it's beautiful. And the computer makes perfect letters. But what the artist does is not perfection. The artist is interpreting. Mm. Artist is retelling the story from a perspective. The machine can never do that. Mm. You know, I try to make my lines as straight as perfect and the letters as perfectly curved as perfect. And the serifs has detailed and finessed as possible. But there's always those little handmade variations. That's what gives it that handmade feel. Yes, so mechanical versions become less of a one-off piece of art. And the other thing, I guess, is that the love is missing. Yeah, yeah, that has to have a... A, a place in the finished product. Thinking about more recently, I mean, artists have had challenges all around the world, not just artists, but, but pretty much the entire population because of what we've been through. Have you had any particular challenges over the past 20 months, both in terms of continuing with your art or, or personally and moving ahead while the, while the planet is in such turmoil? Uh, I, I think everyone shares in the distress mm. uh, that a global pandemic produces We've been very lucky here. First of all, my studio is way out in the middle of nowhere. Mm. So during the worst of the pandemic, we would go into a store once a week and the gas station once a week. Mm. Other than that, I was just back and forth between the studio. So it didn't devastate me, but it, it eliminated the cash flow. Yeah. Uh, certainly 
which was a real issue. Yeah. You know, the work is completely dried up and still has not come back yet. But I'm much more fortunate than many are. And I think there's no magic solution, to be honest, Kevin, and and everyone suffers, I guess, in their own way. Uh, Some people have been doing better than others, but I guess it's a level of resilience that we all have to kind of recognize that hopefully we have and we can draw upon. Exactly. Within your practice, I mean, it appears as though you're also very generous. Now, prior to us going into a pandemic and lockdown, you would offer something like a two-week sculpting course for people every year, free of charge. Is that a way of promoting both your art and, I guess, giving something back or making sure that a type of artistry is not lost to the community. That is exactly what it's about. You often hear that sculpture in stone is a lost and dying art form. Mm. I can't think of a better way to change that around than to do this class. I mean, uh, I learned it by myself. I would be so much further ahead, I believe, if I'd have had some formal instruction at the beginning. Mm. I was, uh, when I first started this, the class is called the Hunter Stone Carving Seminar. And we have a a website for that as well. It's called freehscs.com. And that stands for the Hunter Stone Carving Seminar. This is our 14th season. We're going to start up again uh, September 20th Mm -hmm. through October 2nd this year. One of the major misconceptions, as I said earlier, the material removal is fairly rudimentary. I've had four-year-olds carving mm. with a small air hammer in 15 or 20 minutes of instruction. People say, I'm not artistic, you know, so I, I grab an oak leaf and we trace it on the stone and say, do this. And they have a blast mm. because this is something that they would have never imagined they could do. And they can carve... We have 20 blocks of stone at the site. They can carve on those and they remain on permanent public display. Mm. Or they can take a small stone and carve that and take it with them. We have people come and do house numbers. We had a couple did their wedding invitation (laughs) carved in stone, which they then photographed and sent out to everyone. Lovely. I had a couple from uh, South, one of the Carolinas, for a number of years, was planning their summer vacation around coming to the class. When I started it, I get a grant for the class every year. Okay. From used to be the Green County Council on the Arts. Now it's called Create. They've been very generous. And I have, oh man, I think it's about 25 local and regional supporters mm. who pitch in to make it happen. For example, my tool supplier, a company called Trow & Holden, up in Barrie, Vermont, uh, Norm Ackley and his crew have been very generous. They lend us $1,000 worth of tools mm. every year mm. to make sure the class happens. So um, it's it's a uh, takes a village to carve stone. Yes, and it's excellent that you actually have that level of, of support around you from the commercial interests and from the community itself. It's surprising. You know, when I first applied for the grant, it was just a lark. I, I presumed... I would never get any money for this. So I just fill out the form and then, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll go for this much and we'll do this, that, and the next thing. And I, and they gave me money. Then I had to actually figure out how to pull it off. And it's from the first year, it's just taken on a life of its own, mm. which is very rare in art. Art is usually a major uphill battle. When it comes to you and a signature piece, are you still looking 
for that elusive commission or that elusive piece? What what piece of art is missing from your portfolio? I mean, the Rip Van Winkle work is is well known and is a hugely heavy piece as well. It's a few a few tons, I understand. By eight tons. Eight tons, yeah. But is there another one in your life still to come? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> uh, I couldn't tell you what it is. I mean, I'd love to get a big commission. That would be nice. Not to have to always struggle to, to get by. Yeah. One of the interesting aspects about the film, and I do horror movie conventions often, you know, I get to go out and for a weekend, I'm a movie star. And then yep. I come back here and trying to figure out how to pay for the brakes on my old truck, you know? Yeah, yeah. So a really cool big job would be nice, but uh, we're all a little bit adrift. And it's about, again, really seeing what you're looking at mm. and figuring out how to engage with it. Mm. The one project that I would like to do most is to play Belial, to make Belial a real character. Because in all of the films so far, Belial's been this raving thing. I did him in the one the one scene in the second film and that was interesting but it wasn't it wasn't done in a in a in a way that could be done for a whole film okay so let me just let, I, I, in the introduction i didn't explain who belial was but he is the antagonist pretty much in the basket case movies but kevin he's he's just like a blob of fat with two arms and sharp teeth so you're wanting to then as you played the character of his brother you then want to personify himself now older with his, and he has his own children now, right? 11 of the baby Belial survived that night at the police station. <laughs> and they're in their early 20s now. And all hell is about to break loose. So you're, you've been working on a script, I guess this has been turning around in your head, I don't know, for how long? 30 years? Uh, well, a couple of decades. It didn't start right away. But yeah, I've been working on this for a while. And it resolves the difficult issues of Basket Case 2 and 3. Mm -hmm. And you, we also get to know all of the baby Belials, who are adults now. Young adults, but adults. Yeah. And there's a confluence of circumstance. They find themselves at this age, at this moment, in a situation that is almost unbelievable. Um, it involves a uh, a chemical spill at a military base. You can imagine eleven of them plus blah. And thinking of the genre of films that we were so engrossed in seeing at art college back in the eighties at these art cinemas, I I'm wondering this is kind of sounding like a Toxic Avenger meets Basket Case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or um, what's the David Lynch one? Eraserhead. Eraserhead, yes. It would be very different. It's not basket case four. No. It would be case four. Because part of the problem with two and three is the drastic departure from reality. This would be a much, much more real, much grittier film. And it would be completely inclusive of what's going on now in our culture. These 11 baby Belials are have partners as well and we're going to show all the range of his her them they there's a lot of potential there i think you see yes and, and um this conversation now has taken a, a rather unexpected turn however it has given me an idea because we're finishing on a note of film i would wonder whether i could borrow how james lipton 
on Inside the Actors Studio would end his conversations with the various guests that he would have. Uh, so I've borrowed a couple of questions from him and I've added a few of my own. So are you happy to go into these quickfire questions that he became famous for? Absolutely. Okay. So the time starts now. Your favourite film apart from your own? Uh, Frankenstein. Uh, close second to Seventh Seal. Oh, yes. Your favourite actor? William Fickner. Oh, tell me about William quickly. Oh, if you haven't seen Albino Gator, you must see it. He is one of the best actors around right now. And your favorite song? Life on Mars, Dave Bowie, early Bowie. Oh, very good. Your general preference, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Oh, Stones, of course, yeah. Automobile or motorbike? A bike, but my pickup truck is a real close second. I need my truck, man. Does pineapple ever belong on pizza? Yes. One place you'd like to visit, but you haven't yet? Italy. What's your favorite word? Love. What's your least favorite word? Conservative. <laughs> Show your colors there, Kevin. What sound or noise do you love? Water on stones, followed mm. closely by the wind in the pines. And the sound or noise that you hate? The whining of brainwashed conservatives. Okay, what, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Teach. Uh, teach stone carving. The biggest surprise you ever got? Fatherhood. Mm. If you could do it all over again, what would you change? I would do case four sooner. <laughs> okay, still on the cards. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I'm sorry. Kevin, it's been an absolute delight to catch up with you and talk to you particularly about your art and the struggles, I guess, that pretty much every artist suffers, irrespective of whether there's turmoil in the world or not. Even just making sure you meet the rent every month is perhaps some of the greatest challenges or the greatest challenge that any artist may have throughout their life and their career. I think it's very comforting, actually, to hear that someone of the calibre and of the talent of you can relate to all of that as well. And I really appreciate your time talking to us on the podcast today. Oh, man, my pleasure. Thank you. That's Kevin Van Hendenrick, sculptor and stonecarver, and who played the lead role in the cult classic Basket Case films, now hoping to continue that story with a screenplay in hand, it seems. And Kevin mentioned quite a few websites in that chat, so let me run through them for you. If you are in the US and interested in Kevin's free rock carving seminar, that website is freehscs.com, okay? freehscs.com referring to the Hunter Stone Carving Seminar. To view Kevin's own work, his website is www.kevinvanh.com Alright? kevinvanh.com And I do recommend you take a look because his work is just lovely. And to make it easy, all those websites are listed in the description of this episode at www.insidethegallery.com.au And if you would like to catch Basket Case, if that's your thing, it is currently streaming via the free Tubi service, that's T-U-B-I, in Australia. And from what I can tell here in Australia, using a VPN, it appears to be available via Tubi in the US as well. That is the podcast for now. Thanks for downloading this special edition. Don't forget the transcript is available at www.insidethegallery.com.au. Thanks to Pixel Perfect Pro Lab. And until the next edition, I'm Tim Stackpool. Bye-bye for now.